you know, every day I go to sleep and I curl up in a little ball and I cry to myself, all states are assumed to be rational actors. All states are assumed to be rational actors. Yeah, except for you know that's not true now. It hurts. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Orientalist Express podcast. On this show, we bring together several young scholars to discuss a variety of topics related to the Middle East, American foreign policy, and international relations. I'm Nicholas Hayen, the founder of the Orientalist Express blog and website. Joining us today in the virtual studio are our usual team of contributors. We have Stephen Howard. Hello. Brandon Kenny. Good afternoon. And Kirk Hunter. Hi there. Be sure to check out the official Orientalist Express website at orientalistexpress.com to read more about the team. Don't forget to also view our latest post on the Trump administration's travel ban executive order. Our fourth episode begins as the United States and the rest of the world is beginning to adjust to a new administration in Washington. There are expected changes, like proposals to build a wall and the possibility of easing sanctions on Russia, and unexpected changes, like a complete travel ban targeting entire countries or rumors that the Muslim Brotherhood will be officially labeled as a terrorist organization. It is these two topics that we'd like to focus on today. First, let's get into the Trump administration travel ban. The past few weeks have been consumed by the president's executive order, which suspends the refugee program for six countries, Iran, Iraq, Libya, Sudan, Somalia, and Yemen, for 90 days, and permanently suspends the refugee program for Syria. Even more controversial was that this order also suspended all travelers from these nations from entering the United States. This section in particular was ruled unconstitutional by a district judge in Seattle, and the ruling to continue the stay on this decision was confirmed by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Now it seems clear that the administration will either fight, all, fight this all the way to the Supreme Court or issue a new, less controversial executive order. So is there a serious need for an order like this, or is there any version of this order that could be acceptable to Democrats or progressives in America? Acceptable to anyone besides people who are really afraid of Middle East? I don't think so. I don't think there's a acceptable travel ban. I, It is technically legal for the president to put out this sort of executive order. But, I mean, the constitutionality of targeting specifically Muslims, the absolutely chaotic impact that this has on our reputation in the Middle East, I don't, and especially the impact that it has on the domestic political scene here, this was just poorly thought out, poorly executed, and deserves to die a kind of painful death. I think the uh, best reading I've found on this topic is actually um, from the site Lawfare Block, uh, written by Benjamin Witz. The title is Malevolence Tempered by Incompetence, which I think covers exactly what we're talking about here, that this is a, a very poorly thought out and frankly stupidly executed plan that you know any any judge can simply look at Trump's Twitter and see uh, religious discrimination as a core founding principle of this of this uh, order, and then discard it because it's now illegal. But um, I'm not sure if we should be heartened by the incompetence uh, or frightened by the malevolence or, or both. 
um, we're just kind of stuck in this really sad little cycle where we have to hope that they bungle their way through the next four years. But yeah, I I mean, clearly it's illegal. I don't know how this, the thing I keep reading about is how are we going to work with anyone in the Middle East on any counterterrorism, espionage, or um, you know, joint assaults or, or, or planning when our our biggest benefit for the years was, well, when this is all over, you can't live here anymore because you'll get killed, but you can live in the United States. And now none of those people can trust that we'll, we'll follow that promise. So I don't know. I mean, long term, this seems like a crippling, it'll do crippling damage to our uh, uh, relationships in the, in the region. Yeah, I, I agree with both of you. I, it's not only was this, not only is this a terrible idea that won't accomplish the, the goals it seeks to accomplish, um, and not only does it does it do like, real material harm to uh, to people traveling, to people who work in the United States uh, but were born in um, those countries that are listed, uh, but I I can't help but think that, as Kurt said, that it will not only harm uh, those like multilateral efforts at counterterrorism, but this is already being taken and used rhetorically um, by people who would like to incite more violence, who want to turn people against the United States of America. I I only see this as something that's that's going to worsen um, not only just relationships between countries, but you know, worsen the, the, the that threat of terrorism that we fear. Um, I went and I pulled up, I had heard a good quote from Ayatollah Khamenei um, talking about Trump. Uh, he wasn't specifically talking about the travel ban, but I think that um, things like it are a lot of what um, people like the Ayatollah will draw upon um, to turn people against America. He said, we are thankful to this gentleman. He showed the real face of America. Um, it was what we have said for more than 30 years, that there is political, economic, moral, and social corruption in the ruling system of the United States. This gentleman came and brought it out in the open in the election and after the election. Um, and then he actually, in referring to it, I'm taking this from Al Jazeera, by the way, talked about an Iranian boy who was handcuffed at an airport. And it was like using this as an, an example of what he said, this is the true meaning of American human rights, like, you know, taking captive young boys at airports. Uh, there's... So not only is it terrible from a rights, from a respect standpoint, but it's going to worsen our relationships and it will probably only exacerbate um, the extremism problem that we, we want to fight against. I do want to say, especially on the Iranian point, that it is good to know that there is a lot of nuance in terms of what the Iranians see this as. The Iranian government obviously sees this as as Ayatollah, Ayatollah Khamenei said, well, this is just the U.S. showing who they really are. Well, there's a lot of people in Iran who can look at it and go, we understand that this is your government doing this. It's not the people doing this. And for instance, I had a uh, friend up here who was actually from Iran studying a master's thesis who I'm not sure what happened to. So, I mean, his green card was probably revoked and he's probably can't get back now. But he was actually telling me that in Iran, President Trump has actually looked a lot at, like, uh, um, President Rafsanjani. I mean, I'm sorry, not Rafsanjani. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
Yes, like, Ahmadinejad. I've been very confused. I, yes, no, and as you well I mean, should to be fair, been, every, every brown person's at... kind of basically the same, so I don't really know what we're talking about <laughs> <Yeah>. here. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. But, no, it was, and he's looking at it and he's going, well, yeah, he's kind of the Ahmadinejad of the U.S., and, I mean, we don't really look as at Ahmadinejad as... Or he was saying, we don't look as, uh, the Iranian people don't look as Ahmadinejad really representing the Iranian people, just like some of them, and I'm hoping a lot of them, look at the United States and go, well, Trump doesn't really represent the American people. Well, and I think we can definitely make a claim for that, given that he did not win the popular vote, despite the fact that he will dispute that. Um, One question I want to pose to you guys, since I've been told that we should be a little bit more... um, a little bit less agreeable at times, so I'll play a bit of the role of devil's advocate here. But um, what if we completely separated out the refugee issue from the travel ban issue? What if this was only related to cutting the refugee programs rather than a blanket travel ban, which has caused significant problems for corporations, for universities, for a lot of other people? See, I actually I think that's kind of scary because you're getting kind of in the domestic political spectrum there and it's almost you have to separate out what's right from what's possible. It's very disconcerting to have to say that about the United States, but what's right in the United States might not be what's possible in the United States, and if you try to push what's not possible, you're going to end up with a situation where the other side, whoever that happens to be and whoever is might not be on the right side, wins just because you're pushing something that's not it, feasible. It's interesting, actually, I... Um... You know, I don't agree with, with that uh, position, but you can make a feasible case to say, look, we can't take new refugees right now. Any country can make that case. And they can decide we, we will simply not help foreigners. We're going to focus on our own interior affair, affairs. Um, if you do that, you are ceding any moral uh, superiority you might claim to have. And it's a little bit silly, I think, to spend your entire history of your nation claiming to be the, the beacon on the hill or whatever the, the metaphor is, uh, and then turn around and say, right, but this beacon isn't for you. It's just for people who look kind of like us. Um, I wonder if this this isn't part of the long-term strategy of the Trump administration, to be sure, but I wonder if um, there is some value in fighting to maintain that, that kind of claim to uh, an open democracy, a republic that invites refugees from all over the world. Or if at some point, you know, the conservatives in the United States decide, well, we're just done with that. We are done with uh, claiming to help other people and we're just going to turn inward. Because that's actually not a horrible, difficult rhetorical argument to make. We're going to focus on our own and take no more refugees. That's not, that's not a hard thing to, to debate on the debate stage. Um, it is, of course, a moral abomination, but not the end of the world. To, it's kind of like the abortion argument. It's one side, it's very easy to just say, this is a life and we're not going to talk about it. Uh, it's more complicated when you bring in actual human lives and actual lived experience to the, to the conversation. So as, as I understand it, is the, the decision not to take any more refugees, it's not simply a matter of, you know, as, as, as it's being pitched by the Trump administration, it's not being pitched as we can't handle it, like logistically, we can't offer these people what they need, we can't bring them or even that we don't want to help them but it's being used as a solution to uh to a counterterrorism uh, is really what the goal is here they say that oh there might be terrorists among these refugees which has time again time again been been demonstrated as false 
Um, but that's that's the justification here is that American lives are in danger when we bring in uh, refugees and settle them in our country. Um, again, again, it can't be stated enough that that's not true. But in addition to that, I can't see how this, like I said on the first point, I don't see how this doesn't make things worse in that regard. If this is an effort to you know prevent terrorism on American soil, you know now you've got a situation like what what drives people to to enlist with ISIS, for example, it's it's feeling isolated, it's feeling alienated, it's feeling unwanted, it's feeling like there really is an enemy out to get you. It's material concerns. It's feeling that your your material position is unsecure and seeking for something better, you know, having nothing to lose. And there's already evidence that you now ISIS is doing as much as going into uh, Syrian camps and Turkish camps and trying to pay people off to, to come and join um, uh, their little society. So I don't see how this doesn't perhaps result in even more radicalization as people find themselves, they, they find themselves rejected, they find themselves uh, um, spoken of as if they were, they were evil in some way. I, I just, I don't see how this is anything but counterproductive and um, as has been said, uh, by the two before me, uh, morally abominable. And I agree that it's morally abominable. I, but I don't. I, and the point that I have, and that I was that Kurt, you disagree with, is that we might be faced with more of these situations going into the future, where we have, unfortunately, one side is correct in terms of nuance, but they're not on the side of popular opinion. And I'm not saying that you should per se, go for the worst solution just because it's the will of the people, but it's very hard to go against the will of the people, especially in a hyper-polarized system like we have in the United States, where you're either conservative or you're liberal. There is no in-between anymore. So it's really hard to try to push something that the people don't want. I, I, there is an argument to be made there that the people need to be educated more and that they need to be told this is why, like what Brandon was saying, this is why... Uh, we should open our borders to so many of these different people. But just forcing it on them themselves, you're going to have a backlash in terms of what we have now. And that's, we have the Trump administration, which the Trump administration is a direct backlash over what people see as government overreach into private lives, government overreach into foreign affairs, yada, 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 which I find government overreach into foreign affairs incredibly ironic. But that aside... It's, I don't understand, I don't see how you can try to, I don't know, go against the will of the people in this case, which I'm not, I'm not a will of the person, will of the people sort of person, but I don't know what you can do there. Well, isn't the will of the people to maintain the ban? Like, as much as I think it's ridiculous that when they do polling, a lot of the Republicans support the ban. Uh, a huge number of Trump supporters support the ban, and that's disheartening. It shows how, um, you know, how bigoted and, and terrified a lot of our, our country is. Um, but if we're going straight votes, I don't know. Uh, that was, that was actually the most disheartening thing of this whole episode for me was just that you, you see these amazing protests and you think, man, the country is really rising up against this. And then you look at the polls and it's like, oh, the ones who voted no are all at the airports. They're all protesting. The ones who voted yes are just sitting at home waiting for it to blow over. 
still terrified of Muslim refugees coming in and, and killing them in their beds. Like, this is just not a a situation that we can talk ourselves through. I agree, and I'm just not sure if a a push to make it so that we do almost impact on them a, I don't know, something they're absolutely terrified about isn't going to push them in and push the United States into more years of this type of foreign policy that we're seeing in the first month of the Trump administration, which is a complete rejectionist foreign policy. See, but I guess that's kind of my question is, could this be formulated in a way that does, I guess, you know, kind of placate the fears, the in some ways legitimate, in some ways illegitimate fears of a lot of voters in this country to say, you know, rather than a travel ban, which obviously just is, is not going to work on so many levels, but say cut the refugee program in half or something like that. That would placate a lot of people, but still not necessarily be detrimental to American interests and wouldn't necessarily prevent as many people from entering this country who desperately need the help. Again, not saying that I agree with a ban or cutting the refugee program, but finding some sort of middle ground that would, I guess, bring the country together. Yeah. I don't know. It's, I think you're damned if you do, damned if you don't in this case, in this scenario. There's a, Captain Kirk would disagree with me, but this is a lose-lose situation. And it was made this way because we introduced the ban. If the ban had not been introduced, we would have been a, we would have been in a much better position to try to make that sort of nuance in there. But right now, it is seen as either the Trump administration wins or the Trump administration loses. And there are negatives to both sides of those. The negatives in terms of Trump losing is U.S. prestige is going to go down even further than it already is. He's already backtracked on the China issue, the one China issue. He's backtracking on a whole ton of issues right now. And if he just further backtracks and further backtracks, it's just going to reduce the American position and it's going to hobble the United States for the forthcoming administrations after Trump has been out of office. If the travel ban is implemented, that's as Kurt was saying and as Brandon was saying, that's morally reprehensible. It is against everything that the United States is supposed to stand for, everything that every conservative, every liberal has always said the United States stands for. I agree. Um, but I guess, again, the question is that just doesn't resonate with a lot of voters anymore. And so I guess we need to find a way to bring back that sort of idealism that we used to once have. Uh, one of the other questions I had instead is maybe should we be doing more to monitor, I guess, homegrown extremism instead? Because most of the attacks that have been occurring have been occurring because of people who have been born in this country, but were, say, the parents of refugees and who do feel as you alluded to earlier, Stephen, they feel alienated because of policies such as this. It's really, I, it's a really hard question because how do you work with those sorts of generations without specifically tracking people who come in here, which I don't believe is the right way to go about it. But you also have, there is a disjointedness from some of the immigrants when they come into the uh, United States because there is such a nativist tendency in the United States that there is, they don't want to mix in with the United States because the United States basically is give up your culture and be one of us or you're not one of us. Well, of course they're not going to give up their culture. So they're apparently not going to be one of us and they're going to feel completely ostracized in our society. And that's another societal thing. And that's 
I keep getting back to this. I don't know how to work with this societal problem, because I think this all stems from the people of the United States. This is not a Trump administration problem. This is a people of the United States problem. Yeah, I mean, it It sounds like just the statement, should we, do, you know, making the statement, we should do more to combat homegrown attacks. You know, yeah, of course, but I, I, I don't necessarily know what that means uh, is the problem um, because, you know, a lot of the lone wolf attacks that are even... Um, inspired by radical jihad or other other radical movements you know but these are these are fueled by myriad factors and to know whether you know who really is vulnerable who will um engage in violence what factors of their life lead to that is is ultimately a really difficult question to answer um and I'm not sure that, and I'm not sure what the policy solution is to that. Yeah, I don't know that we have anything to offer homegrown, let's say homegrown, uh, Muslims living in the United States anymore. I, I don't know that we can make a claim that this is their country. You know, it, uh, that's the whole ISIS playbook, right? To cause, uh, to fracture unity and to force European and Western nations uh, to ostracize and to reject their their muslim citizens so they will turn to extremism um i don't know it it's really disheartening to see but i don't know that there's any any solution for the next four years which is a lot of time to hope there's no homegrown attacks even though there are pockets of progressive influences in the united states and i use progressive in terms of we are thinking further ahead than where we are now i'm not not the ideology point, but there are a lot of people who want to go back. And we're already seeing this in the United States where we're ripping ourselves in half. Half the United States wants to make America great again, which means that America was great in like the 1950s, the 1960s, something like that, but not today. And then we have the other half of America saying we are going to make America great, which means America is not great now again, but it might be great in the future, 20 years, 5 years, 15 years down the road. And how do you balance those sort of forces? So I'm not optimistic about any sort of societal, I guess, fix for this problem. I think this is going to be a problem going into the future for probably 20, 40 years until we have a new generation. A new generation and a new other to rally against, essentially. Yes, unfortunately. Let's move on to a discussion about rumors to brand the Muslim Brotherhood and Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps as terrorist organizations. Uh, there has been significant rumors lately that the Trump administration is looking to officially label these two very different groups as terrorist organizations. Much of this is due to a bill introduced by a U.S. Senator and falsely alleged Kennedy assassination conspirator Ted Cruz. Though many factions of the Muslim Brotherhood have in fact sponsored or condoned terrorist acts before, the problem here is that the Brotherhood is not one single entity. Rather, it is a multitude of different, though somewhat interrelated, organizations. It contains offshoots in Turkey, Jordan, Tunisia, Egypt, and many others across the Middle East. 
with varying degrees of civic participation in most of these countries. The Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps is also a somewhat complicated issue. Though they have very strong connections to actively promoting terrorist organizations, they are also actively supporting the American-backed president of Iraq, Haider al-Abadi. So should the United States continue to withhold this designation, or is it time to throw caution to the wind and essentially call a spade a spade? And I think this is the another one of those situations where you don't bring it up because of what it entails. And the conversation about branding the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization really plays to the Manichaean mind of the American individual. And that's, you're either good or you're bad. You're with us or you're not. And there's no room for nuance in there. So I quote Shadi Hamid, which is a, he's a scholar on this area. And it's fine to see the Muslim Brotherhood as bad, terrible, authoritarian, illiberal, whatever, but none of those things make it a terrorist organization. And then you're going to have the other side, which says, yes, they're not a terrorist organization. In, ca in fact, they promote liberal values. They are a progressive area just to kind of basically as a middle finger, fuck you, to the people who are trying to make them into looking like what they're not and they're not terrorists. And in that, you either have it as a good organization or a bad organization, and you have no room for saying, this is an organization which is a political political organization, just like the conservatives or the Republicans, just like the Democrats, and you cannot say that the conservatives, the Republicans, the Democrats, the liberals, whatever, are purely good or purely bad, or because conservative hate crime has been on the rise, we should, la we should label all conservatives as terrorists. It just doesn't make sense. Uh, I, I think, I think that's especially the case with the Revolutionary Guard, um, considering how strongly the Revolutionary Guard is tied in with Iranian affairs, with its government. I think that would only worsen the, the already bad tension between the United States and Iran. Um, so I see really no reason to do that, um, even though it is an organization that, uh, we have sufficient evidence to believe that they are they are funding terrorism. Um, the Muslim Brotherhood, I, I think, is a little bit different because I, I, I guess do do they hold any formal power at this point? Uh, I, I don't know the answer to that question. Do any of you? They'd be like uh, conservatives. They hold positions in, for instance, the parliaments of several countries, including um, oh my gosh, Kuwait. Uh, Kuwait Parliament has a couple Muslim Brotherhood affiliates okay. in it. Yeah, because I know what they're what banned from Egypt, not but, but certainly as an organization, not not so tied to the workings of any particular state in the same way that the Revolutionary Guard is. Um, but again, the Muslim Brotherhood has always acted. I, I I guess I see the motivation. Um, I don't think it's a good idea, but I see it um, based on ideology, based on the fact that it's all often been a gateway. Um, for people to then move on to Al-Qaeda with Osama bin Laden, who's a veteran of the Muslim Brotherhood, um, and again, an organization that um, that secretly provides funds, um, which the United States government believes, to terrorist organizations. So I'm, I, I, I still am on the side of don't do it, but I don't see it as being completely unjustified, um, particularly in the case of the Brotherhood. I'm actually kind of exactly opposite you in that case. I believe that the, uh, yeah, it's, I, I think that there is a strong case to be made 
that the Revolutionary Guard is in fact a what we would label as a terrorist organization because of their workings around the Middle East. They are a government entity, so that has a whole set of problems in and of itself. But I think they contribute a lot more to, in terms of you're talking about the backing of the Houthis, the backing of Assad, that is the Iranian, Iranian Revolutionary Guard and specifically the Quds Force that is working in those areas. Yeah, and my, the, I mainly come from a place of not risking escalation with Iran. I agree. And I, I'm just saying there's a little bit better of a, I think, an argument to be made to label, especially the Quds Force, which is their Iranian special forces as a terrorist organization for what it does. In that same logic, the United States Rangers would be terrorists. So, I mean, the logic doesn't extend very far. It's not a very good set of logic, but there's a better one there. The Muslim Brotherhood is much more of an ideological organization that doesn't really have a center of power in it. There's a Egyptian branch, there's a Kuwaiti branch, there's a Iraqi branch, etc., etc., etc. So when you're talking about the Muslim Brotherhood, I think it's a little bit better to look at the Muslim Brotherhood as a ideology in terms of conservatism. There are conservatives in the parliaments of the United States, there, well, parliaments, in the Senate of the United States, there's conservatives in the parliaments in the UK, there's conservatives across the Western spectrum. And they all sort of agree on a whole bunch of things, but they are by no means the same entity. So what if the United States, in its executive order, actually made the distinction between those organizations? What if it just picked out specific parts of the Muslim Brotherhood that could be definitively tied to sponsoring terrorism. That'd be really hard. That'd be like our uh, fun fact. We label the Pakistani Taliban as terrorists. We do not label the Afghani ter Taliban as terrorists. And that's because of those sort of distinctions. But those distinctions really get lost in common or regular talk by everyone around us, and even in policy decisions, the Taliban are just terrorists. And I believe that if you label the Mus Muslim Brotherhood offshoot of Egypt, because the rest of the, the peaceable Muslim Brotherhood people in Egypt are generally all locked up now. But if you label the rest of those people in Egypt as terrorists, they're going to look, all we're going to hear is, we have labeled the Muslim Brotherhood as terrorists. Just like if we label the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, and I'm sure this is Brandon, what you were getting to, as terrorists, we are basically labeling the state of Iran as a terrorist state. It seems like the sort of thing that, um, much like the Muslim ban, is very, very short-sighted and has some very clear short-term goals that could be justified if you, you know, are able to twist your logic around a little bit. But it takes a uh, a competent person two seconds to take a step back and realize, oh goodness, this would have incredible long-term, uh, drastic negative effects. We shouldn't do it, you know. And I think setting the pattern of identifying these large multinational groups, these ideologies as simply terrorists, like how would we sift through the Syria conflict in a similar way? You know, just I remember looking at a map. I don't know if it was Slate or if it was a different website maybe it was Al Jazeera, had like a map, a web of all the different sides and, and uh, factions fighting in Syria, their alliances, their rivalries, that sort of thing. And it was like, 
I understand this stuff pretty well. I could not sift through it. How can we expect someone to decide, well, these 12 are bad, obviously, and these 12 are good, obviously, and we're just going to decide that right now going forward. To me, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, designation is, is a pretty similar situation. We're just deciding that an entire swath of people are bad. The only reason you do that is to frighten and anger uh, Muslims abroad. And that, to me, seems to be the the uh, the goal of the Trump administration, just to uh, anger people abroad and, and at home, excuse me, um, anger Muslims abroad and at home and make them feel ostracized and left out. Yeah, and I kind of agree with that. It's But I, I will say that there are a lot of very intelligent people pushing for the labeling of both of these entities as terrorist organizations. And a lot of it comes down to, like what Nick said, calling a spade a spade. And some people think that you have to be very honest and very direct in forum policy to actually achieve anything. And if you have any sort of nuance or any sort of trying to work around a situation, you're just avoiding a situation. And that's complete fabrication. But it's a very, very persuasive fabrication. It's very hard to convince someone that because there is a organization that is a terrorist entity, we should name it we should not name it a terrorist entity couldn't we also um kind of trust some of these more local groups to uh handle these designations a bit more than we are I, if we're going to decide that the united states is a, a global leader it also stands to reason we would you know welcome refugees and and work on more humanitarian issues it's odd that we're taking a lead on security issues and take and purposely taking a back seat on moral humanitarian issues um and the difference in those two things, I guess, would be uh, the use of military uh, uh, strength to attack people and versus, you know, uh, long-term planning to build bridges and, and connect with, with other cultures. Um, that seems like a bit of a stretch, but I don't know. It, that's, that felt kind of right, that, that the Trump administration is willing to step back humanitarian-wise but move forward as a, as a military um, force. And I think a little bit comes from Trump's idea of what he like what he was saying in his inaugural speech. We're only going to do things for the United States if it benefits the United States. And Trump only sees Trump doesn't see any humanitarian efforts abroad as benefiting the United States because we don't see the effects of those as much. We do see the effects of military intervention very quickly. And therefore, he can say we've directly benefited the United States by doing X, Y and Z with the fighter planes and the carrier groups that we have there's one question i have um regarding so say we do implement this and say okay the muslim brotherhood is now a terrorist organization would that necessarily cause substantial problems regarding the muslim brotherhood working with the united states you know wouldn't the realist policies of the united states or realism in general force everyone to have to work together i mean Essentially, the um, case in point I have is with Cuba. We still consider them a state sponsor of terrorism, but you know, day by day, we're opening up more and more of our, you know, interrelated policies with Cuba, even while still having this designation. It's a pretty good question. I'm not really sure if it would affect our relations with the Muslim Brotherhood, just because you do have to reach modus vivendi's wherever you're working, and global politics kind of go out the windows when those local agreements are made, and those local agreements might just completely abrogate what's happening on a large scale. But 
I think you're going to have a lot of problems in terms of, as I was saying, there are members of parliaments around the world right now which are members of the Muslim Brotherhood, and if they are labeled as part of a terrorist organization, they're going to be, not going to be able to be led into the United States, which is going to lead to diplomatic problems. I mean, you have the speaker, uh, or who is it, the Iranian representative from, for the United Nations, I believe. I don't remember if he actually ended up being let in or not, but because he was part of the um, t a hostage crisis, the Iranian hostage crisis, he was not let in, at least as far as I know, to the United States to represent the Iran. And I think you have problems like that that are going to go on further and further because in a lot of these places, the Muslim Brotherhood is the only political organization, say, in Egypt, where you basically, before the fall of Mubarak, you were Muslim Brotherhood or you were pro-government. And so that doesn't leave a lot of space for any other political party. And if you dare declare that entire political party as a terrorist organization, how are you going to work with that government going forward, knowing that if that, that at least the government falls out of power and the Muslim Brotherhood comes into power? I mean... At the same time, think of, like, some of the more minute consequences here. So if we declare them a terrorist organization, and you're affiliated with them, what does affiliation mean? Is it something like you were a member at 29, and a few years later, you become a more conservative politician, but now you can't go to the U.S. because you're banned, right? So this is a tricky part to me, is that when you're, some, when you're talking about such a vague group, it's not so much calling a spade a spade as calling every tool you've ever seen a spade and then kind of going from there, right? So I don't really know how this can work in a practical sense, not even in a moral sense. Logistically, it seems like a nightmare. Yeah, these are so many different countries with so many different iterations of the Muslim Brotherhood. And uh, the end result means we're just going to declare all of those people who are collaborating or working with or interested with or affiliated with vaguely, uh, you know, terrorist affiliates. And as we've seen with the blacklist in more liberal uh, gov uh, American governments, you know, no fly lists are serious business. We're about to see a, a pretty huge expansion in that, it seems. I agree with you, and I also like the the affiliation or the collaboration with them, too. Yeah, if, I, if someone's been working with the Muslim Brotherhood because they represent the district of XYZ in country X, is that collaboration with a terrorist, then? And what does that mean for your future in the United States? What does States? that mean for governance? What does that mean for coalition governments in, in some of these countries? You know, and yeah. um, it's, inter it's again, I just came back to this, this thought that, like, that Trump is, is very, and his posse are very willing to make policy, um, global policy, when it comes to terrorism and, and military strength and bans, but also are, are running away from the responsibility of the refugee crisis in Syria, which is you know, the biggest mass migration since what? I mean, would you call the Great Partition a similar situation in India and Pakistan? Like, hmm. this is a a, a catastrophic um, situation, and we are simply abrogating responsibility and then turning around and saying, but we do have the right to declare your coalition government a terrorist government. Sorry. What it actually harkens back for me a little bit is President Bush's declaration of, what is it? Axis of evil. Uh... Yes, exactly. The axis of evil, but this is on a entire region-wide scale. We are declaring not one state uh, that's complete. Well, we are declaring them specifically a state sponsor of terrorism because of the Iranian Republican Guards, but or Revolutionary Guards, I'm sorry. But 
yeah, we're going to be declaring a whole list and whole mess of states as terrorist sponsors or sponsors of terrorism. And I mean, that did not go well for anyone who doesn't, who hasn't learned or hasn't read about what happened after, uh, to Iran and Iranian American revolution or re- Iranian American relations after that speech. Go look it up. It this could have been a completely different scenario in the Middle East if that speech had not been made. So other Muslim countries have already made this uh, this or a similar declaration. Would it be possible for the United States to model something after that? Hmm. That's a good question. I think there are a lot of regional rivalries. I'm pretty sure Saudi Arabia has declared the Muslim Brotherhood a terrorist organization, although I'm not certain about that, so don't take my word for it. But Saudi, I think a lot of those countries that have declared the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization already, if my memory serves me correctly, are nations that I guess myself I would see as on a downward or at least a plateauing slope. In term, it's going to be the what Egypt, Syria, Saudi Arabia. These aren't countries that have particularly bright futures, and they haven't. They have a direct incentive in many cases to call them a terrorist organization because the Muslim Brotherhood would be looking to undermine their authority. Sure, and they're also looking to undermine their foreign policy abroad. Saudi Arabia directly supports Egypt, therefore, and Egypt is directly threatened by the Muslim Brotherhood, or at least the ruling political class is directly threatened by the Muslim Brotherhood, so it makes foreign policy sense to declare them a terrorist organization. But I'm not sure if it's effective. I'm not sure, honestly, what impact it has. I, I, that's, that's a good study, though. It, what is the impact of Saudi Arabia's declaring the Muslim Brotherhood a terrorist organization? That's a very good idea for a study. Yeah, I wonder, um, I mean, if, if the effect is effective, if the planned effect is effective policy and, and you know, nuanced diplomacy, there's, that's not going to go well. But if the planned effect is fear and frustration and confusion, then this is par for the course, you know, and um, this is a like, kind of like a, another fascist approach here. If we, if our enemies are confused, I know what's true, what's not true. Um, and even if our citizens here are confused and not sure what's true, and what's not true, uh, we can do a lot of things while we're in power. Um, it just seems like one more, one more uh, piece that the Trump administration is adding to their collection of ways to make Muslims around the world feel both ostracized and angry. You know, and I actually have a question about that, which isn't super related to this topic, but I know that when President Reagan was elected in way back when, his foreign policy was to make the Soviet Union super uncomfortable with him and think that he was so irrational that he might chance nuclear warfare so they would be easier with him. Do you think that might be what Trump is trying to do? Make it so the entire world sees him as so irrational as to, okay, maybe we shouldn't try to do anything against the United States. I don't think Reagan's foreign policy worked in that regard, but is he trying to take a cue from Reagan here in terms of Middle East foreign policy, well, and, at least? And I'm going to, this is kind of the, uh, my long-term analysis of, of Trump, even from the beginning of, the, of his campaign, um, is that I think a lot of people rightfully um, address, look at some of his actions and think there must be some sort of plan here. Um, and I think we should instead analyze this as the kind of flailing uh, um, and really incompetent decisions of someone who does not know what they're doing. Um, there's not always like a 12-step plan. I don't think Trump is familiar enough with Reagan to know about that. 
I, I do not think um, Trump knows <laughs> enough about foreign policy to make these decisions. I think some of his advisors do, but the con the constant infighting within his administration leads me to think that since there's so much rivalry and conflict, it's it's just just getting an, an order uh, written and put out there um, takes a little bit of subterfuge, a little bit of, of um, you know secrecy and 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 bending around the rules. I don't know they can make a plan that involves making Muslims feel like there's a, these are irrational actors on purpose. I think it's just pure spite and um, the willpower of Stephen Miller and, and Bannon to push some things through. So I don't mean to completely dismiss your question, Stephen. It's more like I think that the truth is they just don't know what they're doing. And there's not enough experienced State Department people um, to walk them through how they could carry out their evil deeds it's just like i guess we should ban muslims oh wait that's illegal we didn't mean muslims but you said muslims it's on the record <laughs> well we'll try again we'll see you and see you in court it's like that's not how any of this works like it's just not at all how this works if you had some experienced people on your team they would tell you that but they don't oh and i i don't think that's a uh, refutation of my question at all i think that's a very good answer to my question because okay, i keep looking for a lot <laughs> I think that's a human condition thing too. I keep looking for logic. Keep looking for it. And that's that's the mistake yeah. of our current political journalism uh, situation right now is that people are looking for logic, they're looking for reason, and we need to like take a step back and think about. I think Slate did a few uh, pieces where they would analyze American politics as if it was a foreign country. Do you guys remember that? Where they would write the article about no, you know, well, the the ruling junta today did this, and it's like just. Just putting all the words we use for foreign dictatorships and foreign nations into an analysis of American policy, which I think is what we need to do as a nation. Like, take a step back. If we saw this happening in Poland, uh, we'd have a pretty clear idea what's going on. We would know exactly what they were doing. But it's happening here, so it must be some sort of complicated scheme. It's like, no, this is just pretty basic, straightforward fascism. No need to get cute and think of a new name for it. This is just basic fascism done by not-so-smart people. And that's it for this episode of the Orientalist Express podcast. I'd like to thank our guests, Stephen, Kurt, and Brandon, for their insight and analysis, as well as our listeners and readers of the blog. Be sure to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com, like and share on our Facebook group, or tweet us at orientalistexp. Our podcast is also available on iTunes, Stitcher, and all of your other favorite podcast sites. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Tschüss.